You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. With me, your angry feminist host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. And lest we forget, I'm also your friendly neighbourhood social scientist, as long as you don't give me a reason to not be friendly with you. That's a very, what a very aggressive way to start the show, Katie. Well, you know, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. So yeah, first things first, I should probably say hi to a lot of the new followers who have, um, hi, me my hot sauce, how's it going? Anyway, thank you for joining, welcome to the Guild of Historical Descent. For, for the newbies, for the newbies I should probably say that when I get the opportunity to, I do like to discuss things that are often um, mistold or misinterpreted throughout history, hence why it's a, a Guild of Historical Descent. I don't think I've even said that in a long time. But, you know, the reason I started this podcast was so that I could talk about stuff in history that I found interesting. And unfortunately, a lot of history is told through the perspective of the pale and stale men, you know. And what we learn is through their very limited scope and perspective. Not only that, but it's it's very Eurocentric. And you'll find that a lot of history is shown and taught through the lens of European standards and it's very myopic and it's very classist and it's and racist and Eurocentric and it's it's a whole bag of cats so when I get to dispel myths and provide a truer version of history and I know you can go but this is your perspective and it's like well It is far too easy to go, oh, well, I don't like how this is, so I'm just not going to believe it, which is actually part of the backfire effect, which we'll discuss at some point, probably, maybe. But um, my video got a little bit popular because I was talking about the people who say not all men, especially the people who... You see, last week, a 22-year-old schoolteacher went for a jog after work, and she was murdered by a man in broad daylight. And yet again... This horrific and cruel event serves to amplify the continued and socially accepted abuse of women that is totally 
and irrefutably ingrained in our society and we need to work better to and that's something we really need to like revolt against because that's not acceptable and this poor girl her body had not touched the soil less less than 48 hours after she was viciously killed not all men was trending on twitter in response to this i shouldn't have to explain that if your automatic response is to go in defense and go not all men kill women nobody said all men killed women people don't say all men kill women it doesn't start with murder it never starts with murder it starts small it starts with microaggressions taking up more space making sexist comments forcing yourself into a woman's attention not listening to them when they tell you no by not listening to women, by dismissing their fears and demanding that we rip our guts out and spill our collective trauma for your consumption in order for us to justify our fear. Anywho, this got very serious very fast. So the video I made, I I made the same video actually last year when Sarah Everard was killed by a policeman. And so like, I I didn't think it was going to, blow up the way it did uh but it did the video basically goes that anyone who says not all men should have to play a game of russian roulette because there's a bullet in the chamber but not all chambers so one in five women are at risk of being attacked and assaulted by men like grievously assaulted if you're talking about other forms of abuse harassment and assault that's four and five. And the purpose of that is not saying all men have to play Russian roulette because that's uh, an incredibly stupid take to have. And the game of Russian roulette, men aren't the bullet. The bullet is the risk. Women have a one in five chance of being horrifically assaulted and abused by a man. So the risks in the game of Russian roulette run parallel to to the very real life situations that women are put in by men. And that's the point. And this is it. You can't check the chambers. You don't know which one the bullet's in. You don't know. And if you're not willing to play, why should we? But anyway, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber-jabber. In fact, me, in fact, you, I will. But first, we got to get our source on. Our sources are Lucrezia Borgia, Life, Love and Death in Renaissance Italy. The Borgias, Power and Fortune by Paul Strathern. The Life and Times of Lucrezia Borgia by Maria Bellonci. And, of course, we have our favourite, History.com and Biography.com. Lucrezia Borgia was born on April 18th, 1480. Near Rome, to Venozza Catenai. I'm so... I'm, I know I'm butchering these name lads. I'm so sorry. To Venozza Catenai and Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia. So Venozza, even though she's married, she is the Cardinal's favourite mistress for like so long. And even when Lucrezia is born, no one believes it's Venozza's husband. Like they're like, nah, it's not. So like from the get-go, she was basically known as a Borgia. And so Cardinal Rodrigo, he goes to all of these astrologers and soothsayers and he wants them to tell him the future of his newborn baby, Lucrezia. And so, like, the astrologers and the 
the soothsayers, they were like, your daughter, this baby will have a remarkable future. And they're basically saying the sunshine's out of her arse, she's going to be amazing, uh, she's super awesome. But in fairness, I'm fairly certain nobody wanted to piss off Rodrigo there because he had quite a lot of power and he was consistently amassing it. So the Borgia family, they, although they were like massive in Italy, they originated from Spain. So like native Italians, they were kind of suspicious and they weren't too keen on the Borgias, especially in the beginning. See, the Borgias had been involved in the church for like a good while. Because his, Rodrigo's uncle, so like his uncle was a pope. So that was how he ended up being a cardinal. You know, because nepotism is everywhere. It's rife, especially in the church. So he would basically be doing wheeling wheeling and dealing. He would be manoeuvring and he would be working politically to raise his family's interests. After spending her formative years with her mother, Lucrezia has moved to Rodrigo's cousin's house, Adriana Orsini. So Lucrezia gets taught the way a high lady should be taught. You'll find that like during this period of time that women, especially high class women, were quite well educated. It was seen as an expected thing. So Lucrezia was taught Latin, Greek, Italian, French, and of course things like uh, singing and music and drawing and basically everything that could make her more appealing in court, in sort of high society circles, basically trying to make her the epitome of Italian culture and desire. What her teacher said to her was like, she was taught to be clever and clear, not to be like fluffing her words and just, you know, bullshitting and ag- and saying things that sound pretty, but actually have no meaning. The whole point was that everything she said had value. Because as a woman in society, especially then, she had to ensure that she had value. In 1492, Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia becomes Pope Alexander VI. He gets elected to the pontificate. And this changes everything. Being the family of the Pope, regardless of whether you're illegitimate or not, because strangely enough, he claimed them, he claimed his children, especially those by Venozza, Cesare and Giovanni, they are, um, Lucretia's older brothers, they are all claimed and utilised by Pope Alexander VI. So everything, every move in this game of chess was to ensure that the Pope had power. So every single one of his children, but Lucrezia especially, would be a very useful pawn for him. And because Lucrezia was a well-educated, aesthetically pleasing, apparently, and appropriately educated girl. And because Lucrezia had, you know, reached puberty, at least we think she has, Lucrezia is a very valuable piece at this point. Being part of the the Pope's sort of family, it made you like royalty. In Italy, you were seen as the highest of society. Of course, being a woman in Renaissance Italy, what does this mean? Women are used to secure alliances. That's it. And that's what people wanted to marry her because obviously she's the equivalent of a princess in fucking Rome. And marrying into this family ensured security and safety and power. And that's what people wanted. And it also helped that apparently Lucrezia was fucking gorgeous. 
But what did she look like, I hear you ask? Well, so Lucrezia, she had, she was very much a beauty, um, especially within Renaissance Italy. So she has a beautiful complexion, long blonde hair that basically goes past her knees. She has hazel eyes and a full high bosom. Like, this is brought up on more than one occasion. Her full high bosom. Okay. Uh, and also that she has a natural grace that made it seem as if she walked on air. Basically, she had good posture, right? She had good posture and she wasn't clumsy. Hooray! She had brilliantly white teeth and a slender neck. Also, in addition furthermore, they state the bust is admirably proportioned. Like, they were obsessed with boobs even back in Renaissance Italy. This is not, <laughs> this is not a new thing. Wow. Basically, she was seen as pleasant and graceful. That's nice. That's nice. So, like, she inspired, like, painters and shit. Like, when she was 12, um, the painter Il Pinturicchio used Lucrezia as the model for his depiction of St. Catherine. Because he painted frescoes in the Borgia apartments in the Vatican in 1492. And in, like, the following year, the Duke of Ferrara's ambassador describes the 13-year-old Lucrezia as exquisite graceful young darling whose education had been quote full of christian piety so she had all of the um traits and qualities that one would expect with such an upbringing she was desirable because you know it's the whole madonna and whore idea because she was seen as the epitome of purity that really bumps up her worth so surprise surprise all like the main massive families in Italy are like, we need to get in on this, somebody marry that child. So loads of people are trying to like build this alliance with the Borgias. Like there were two Spanish suitors who were like trying to get her hand in marriage. They were well into this. The king of Naples even tried to get her, was even trying to marry her like. And so all these suitors are coming forward and they're like trying to prove why they would be a worthy alliance, why they would be best suited to be aligned with the Borgias. Because nobody gives a fuck, actually, about Lucrezia and her well-being. But, again, nepotism and previous alliances all come into play. So Cardinal Sforza, whose brother was the Duke of Milan, he puts forward his nephew, Giovanni. So Giovanni's, like, 20-something. And the Borgias go, yep, this seems like a good deal. We can work with this. Because the Sforzas are really powerful, like, in the north and in central Italy, that by aligning themselves with them, it really sort of strengthens the alliances. So, on the 9th of June, 1493, Giovanni Sforza, who I think is like 20-something, so he swans into Rome like the cat's pyjamas, having a grand entrance via the Porta del Popolo, Porta del Popolo, and three days later him and Lucrezia get hitched. And obviously this is the society wedding. Um, so basically you've got like all of the, the upper crust families are there. You've got politicians, ambassadors, officials, so on and so forth. The whole thing, there's a big party. It's a massive celebration. Everyone's dancing and eating and partying out. Then like, so like in the early hours of the morning, the couple are accompanied to the Palace of Santa Maria in Portugal. And throughout this whole time, no one gives a flying fuck about Lucrezia, about her place in all this, her fears, her hopes, nothing 
matters because she's just useful until she isn't. And she's 13. And you can say it's a different time. A child is still a child regardless of the century. So in the following year, this shit hits the fan. So King Charles VIII of France, he just fucking invades Italy, doesn't he? Like, of course. And, and Lucrezia's husband's uncle forges an alliance with the French um, and he does this against Pope Alexander. So against Lucrezia's fathers. So she is basically, at the age of 14, stuck in this fucking political storm between her husband's family and her own. And Giovanni, he's also stuck in the middle. So he's either like, do I align myself with my wife's family or with my own? And in the end, Giovanni's like, yeah, no, I'm not turning against my uncle. So tough. I can't support your brothers. So Cesare. And he's like, all right. And very considerately, informs his sister that he's gonna have to kill her husband and she's like okay so Lucrezia goes fuck this for a game of soldiers and decides to protect her husband and warns him and Giovanni flees he gets the fuck out of dodge he heads to Milan disguised as a beggar which you know Must have been so tough for him. So he's fucked off. And the Borgias are like, well, this isn't useful to us anymore. He's a prick. Let's get rid of him. And seeing as we cannot fucking just kill him, we have to think of an alternative route. I know, let's get an annulment. So in order to have the marriage annulled, they needed a reason, obviously. And the reason that they used was Giovanni was impotent. And so their game plan was stating that the marriage was never consummated because Giovanni was impotent. And Giovanni's like, no, I don't like this. So he decides um, that he wants to ruin Lucrezia's reputation. The very person who saved his life, he wants to destroy hers. Okay, Um, in a totally sane and reasonable act, sarcasm, uh, Giovanni starts spreading lies about Lucrezia in a way to tarnish not only her reputation but the reputation of her family or perhaps he was just trying to tarnish the reputation of her family and Lucrezia was just collateral damage because why the fuck would this child matter to you? So like normally when you think of Lucrezia Borgia you think of this evil manipulating poisoner who fucked her brother like that's what you hear. Uh, I also um, want to blame Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed has a lot to fucking apologize for. Like, I understand it's fantasy, but the whole concept is that it's based on historical fact. And 80% of the time, they treat women like fucking garbage. They'd rather continuously project this image of them being absolute cunts than instead of making them a three-dimensional fucking character. As at the point, the point is, they did it to Lucrezia Borgia, they did it to Cleopatra, and they, like, and they really downplayed Anne Bonny. I'm just, I'm just saying, alright? Like, mmm, mmm. Just, it just bothers me. It's all I'm saying. I love the Assassin's Creed games, but 
Mm. Yeah, so I blame I blame stuff like that and a lot of popular culture. It feels the need to project any kind of strong or clever woman from the past as either a whore or a fucking bitch. Like, this is why I have an issue with the perception of history. So, moving on, before I get mad. <laughs> but Giovanni also claims and publicly declared that Pope Alexander VI knew his daughter carnally. And he continues to do this because, you know, he's a dick. So they're like, hey, we'll give you her dowry. You can keep that. We're not going to ask for that money back. And Giovanni's like, maybe. That seems like a maybe. But then the Sforza family, they threaten to withdraw their protection of him if he refuses to, to agree to the annulment because he is making things very difficult for them, like, politically. Like, it's a huge, absolute fuck-up. So Giovanni, finally, after getting his money and ensuring his protection, signed confessions of impotence and documents of annulment before witnesses. And... He has to publicly proclaim that her virginity is intact. So while the annulment sort of negotiations are happening, Lucrezia is retired to a convent, the convent of San Sisto in Rome. So Lucrezia, she's just kicking about the convent, chilling out, being, you know, pious, 17-year-old. And next thing you know, her brother Juan found murdered in the Tiber. Cesare, he becomes a cardinal in his late teens like a teenage cardinal are you fucking kidding me if that's not a sign of nepotism i don't know what is so he is very quickly gaining a ridiculous amount of power and he becomes a military chief of the papal states and it's like um the area in central italy that's around rome that's kind of under direct papal control really yeah fuck no bollocks arse cesare his name is Cesare. I've been calling him Cesare, as in like Cicero this whole day. Why? It's Caesar. You know what I've done? I've conflated Caesar with, with Cesare. It's fine. It's fine. I've acknowledged my mistake. I'm not going back to re-record all the times I've said his name because I'm an hour in. It's not happening. No. So Cesare, fuck me. Cesare is the... So yeah, he's in charge of like the Pope's armies. Like cool and he's trying to like get in with Carlotta who's the daughter of the Neapolitan king so yeah Cesare finally decides that it's time for Lucrezia to leave the lovely seclusion of the San Sisto convent because forever pursuing their own interests the Borgias decide that she's gonna get hitched again yay and they decide that the illegitimate son of the king of Naples Alfonso of Aragon is the way to go. So it's 1498 and Lucrezia and Alfonso get married in the Vatican. According to all sources, the two of them were actually wanting to marry each other as opposed to, you know, as opposed to her being forced into a marriage. It's nice when there's some enthusiasm and you're not being forced into an unpleasant arranged marriage. So Lucrezia, she's 18 at this point, and Alfonso's like a wee bit younger than her. But he's also apparently easy on the eye. Apparently he's quite he's quite hot. And he's not an idiot, which is nice. So he's smart and he's handsome, which, you know, considering that she went from being forced to marry someone much older than her. So they end up having a rather um pleasant marriage. Short, but pleasant. Like apparently they were quite happy together. 
So like basically a year later, Lucrezia gives birth. She has a son called Rodrigo, who she names after her father, which is, you know, as, as one does. You know, they had a child, they had a happy marriage, but unfortunately, because of Cesare, things just fucking fall apart because Lucrezia's happiness means absolutely fuck all to anybody. And of course, the Borgias, being the vicious political fuckwits that they are, decided, nah, this ain't working for us. So the Pope, like, he's trying to negotiate a marriage between Carlotta of Naples and Cesare, and when that doesn't happen, he decides to align with his enemy, France. So the new French king, Louis XII, ends up being his new buddy. And Cesare marries Charlotte d'Albret, daughter of the Duke of d'Albret, and um, who's somehow related to the French king. I, I don't know how, but she is. So anyway, Borgias are aligned with France and are in complete opposition to Naples. Basically, um, they're like, oh, no, you didn't do what we wanted you to do. Well, now we're going to fuck your shit up. And so Lucrezia's husband, Alfonso, becomes a political liability in the eyes of the Borgias. And as we know from Lucrezia, she's not afraid to stand up for her man and be like, save yourself. So it's getting close to like the year 1500 and the Pope, he's still visiting astrologers and shit. And they're like, whoa, dude, careful. Ooh, misfortune is coming. So yeah, in June 1500, there's a papal meeting going on and apparently a gust of wind hits a chimney, the chimney falls down, kills three people and injures Pope Alexander. And Lucrezia being the kind, considerate daughter that she is, she goes to the Vatican and she's taking care of her, her wounded father. And while she's there looking after him, Alfonso and his entire entourage are attacked by a large group of knife-wielding henchmen on the steps of the Vatican. So they're all getting stabbed, step, step. And because Alfonso is like really fucking wounded because he has been stabbed like a cheese hedgehog. So Lucrezia, she goes to her husband and she starts personally taking care of him. And she's doing everything in her power to protect her husband. So she's preparing his food for him. She's calling in the most trusted doctors from Naples. She is covering her bases. Even her father, Pope Alexander, orders 12 guards to stand watch outside of Alfonso's room. And of course, rumours are spreading, like everyone thinks that Cesare is behind it. And pamphlets are released. So they were like, people are literally spreading pamphlets with shit like, Cesare said, what won't happen at lunch will happen at dinner. Meaning that we didn't get him the first time around. So like the fact that he's doing this, it's very strange though, because if he was involved in the plot, why would he be protecting him? It's very interesting. So a month later, when Alfonso was still recuperating, someone enters Alfonso's room, and as he lays in bed, wounded from being incredibly stabbed, he is strangled to death. And Lucrezia is absolutely distraught. She is heartbroken. She loved him. She cared for him, which is incredible considering the fact that it was an arranged marriage. Oh my god, yes! I forgot to mention this actually. So in 1498, before she gets married, um, when she's released from like the fucking convent, she shows up with this like three, four year old boy and the rumour mill obviously goes, oh it must be her illegitimate son that she had in the convent. 
Okay. But like two people, Bill's get released. One saying that it's Cesare's son and then another being like, actually, no, it's it's the Pope's. It's the Pope's son. So whoops, sorry. Ha ha ha. Probably I think the initial scandal was to go, look, it's by him. And then I went, fuck it. No, mine. It's okay. So while Lucrezia is still hanging about the Vatican, this pisses so many people off. Apparently because she's allowed there. So because Lucrezia was incredibly well educated and she was genuinely intelligent, her father felt he could trust her because, well, he's a man and she's a woman, so she was obviously going to do what he told her to do. So anyhow, because she's like taking care of correspondence for for the Vatican City and basically takes care of the place whenever the Pope was away. Like that's what she was doing. And so the fact that she was in the Vatican and she was and doing work that they deemed only appropriate for men... This led to like a massive sort of disrespect and hatred towards her. Lucrezia and her ladies-in-waiting are allowed into St. Peter's Basilica. This was scandalous that a woman in the Vatican was disastrous and evil and vicious and so on and so forth. And the following year, rumours start to spread about the banquet of chestnuts. Now, we don't even know if this actually happened, but it's it's weird. So the banquet of chestnut was, was like this... So Cesare holds this banquet and he invites 50 courtesans into his apartments in the, in the Palazzo Apostolico. After dinner, chestnuts are thrown onto the floor and the courtesans are made to crawl on their hands and needs to forage <laughs> for chestnuts. And ends up being this big orgy and apparently Lucrezia was there because yeah. But like there's no like definitive proof this actually happened let alone, and the timeline doesn't really make sense for Lucrezia to be there, but still. So after her husband dies, she is just absolutely fucking devastated. So the 20-year-old widow is mourning. So she decides to get the heck out of Dodge and heads to Nepi, which is like north of Rome. And when she's there, she's properly in mourning. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation, we hope, but that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Like to the point where she's signing her letters in Felicissima, which basically means the extremely unhappy one. 
But um, Cesare and Alexander, they do not give an actual fuck. Because if she's not being useful to them, they don't care. And instead of, you know, trying to make her life easier or giving her some support, they think, ah, let's marry her off again because we need alliances and we need to use her to benefit us. Instead of thinking, how can we take care of our sister slash daughter? They think, how can we use her to benefit us yet again? And so the two of them are striving and conniving and they decide on Alfonso Deste, a 24-year-old widower and heir to the Duke of Ferreira. And not only did he not have any children of his own, which was super handy, so there was no one to so there was no one to slaughter to you know to ensure there was no arguments over inheritance. And um, his family seat was strategically beneficial because it, he's in Romagna in northern Italy. And his family, they also have like really strong ties with France, so like all the alliances all pan out. But you know. Because of Lucrezia's reputation, as a result of, you know, scheming arseholes and horrific men who just like to ruin women's lives to benefit themselves, the Duke of Ferreira has to send a delegation to basically ensure that the claims against Lucrezia are unfounded. And so the ambassadors go and they're like, yeah, no, she's she's good. She's really wise and she's no tainted love here. Uh-uh. So Lucrezia marries... Alfonso 2.0 in December 1501 and in January she leaves Rome for Ferreira to be with her husband. So when Lucrezia leaves Rome to move to Ferreira she has to basically abandon her son Rodrigo and so she entrusts him to Francesco Borgia. She never sees him again actually and Rodrigo he inherits all of the shit and all the titles and properties and everything that was his father's, he inherits all, you know, upon his father's death, which is, you know, typical. But yeah, Rodrigo, she never saw again. So after Lucrezia leaves for Ferreira to be with her husband in like January, her father, Pope Alexander VI, sends her a letter saying, <clears throat> You will do more for me from afar than you could have done remaining here. Because, you know, he had to just hammer the point home that his interests important than her happiness. Far away from Rome in northern Italy, Lucrezia flourishes. Like, she brings, like, the talents of the Renaissance up to the court in Ferrara. She's, like, a wise and just and considerate lady. And she is absolutely thriving. Like, she is living her best life. But unfortunately, while the rest of the Borgias, they're just crumbling. Because, like, a year later, Pope Alexander, he dies. Probably from malaria, but like everyone thinks, poisoned. <gasps> because, of, of course, it's somebody big dies so there's always a conspiracy. So yeah, Alexander VI, he dies. And after his death, like enemies of the Pope lock Rodrigo and the rest of the Borgia family in the Castel Sant'Angelo. And Lucrezia basically arranges a, a, a discharge um, she, Lucrezia steps up to the fucking plate. She starts corresponding and creating alliances and basically asks that Rodrigo be raised by um, the family of Alfonso of Aragon. Luckily, this is granted. So Rodrigo, he goes to live with his, his aunt, Sancha of Aragon, and then he goes to Isabella of Naples 
she tries to get Rodrigo moved to Ferreira with her. Like now that she has some power and she actually has some autonomy, she's trying to bring her son. She, when he's nine, she sends him a, a tutor from the University of Ferreira and she tries to arrange meetings with him, but it just, whatever happens, it falls through. And in 1512, Rodrigo dies. Some illness, we're not entirely sure what, but he's 12 and he's dead. And after his death, Lucrezia is allowed to go um, to Biscegli to... Biscegli? I've pronounced that wrong. B-I-S-C-E-G-L-I-E. Someone will pronounce it properly for me. So she goes to, like, liquidate his assets and so it's court and she... And she attends the memorial service and then she goes to the convent of St. Bernardino for a month. She basically nopes out and grieves for a month, which is perfectly, perfectly acceptable. Because, you know, the son she desperately tried to reunite with and reconnect with and that she was separated from because of her fucking cruel conniving family is gone. So she grieves for a month before heading back to Ferreira. So, like, upon the death of, of, of the Pope, this creates a domino effect for, like, the Borgias. Cesare, his power just diminishes. And he has to flee to his wife's home in Spain. And he dies in, like, 1507. However, Lucrezia, she's in Ferrara. Like, she had a massive impact there. They say that she's full of life and joy, is really intelligent, most pleasant, which is one of my favourite compliments. And she brings poets and artists and really promotes, like, humanism. Like, the gentry of the day, they said that she was, like, that she was an honour to womanhood because of her beauty and her honesty. Which, you know, is probably the best compliment you're going to get in 1500s Italy. So she has a relatively happy marriage. During this marriage to Alfonso, she has eight, like seven, eight known children during this this marriage. But her, her pregnancies are complicated. There are miscarriages. There are stillbirths. So content warning, um, maybe skip forward 20 seconds um, if you don't want to hear this. So 1502, there's a stillborn daughter. They don't name her. The son, Alessandro Deste, 1505, he dies in 1505, so he only lives a few months. Ercole II d'Este, he's born in 1508. Ippolito, he's born in 1509. Another Alessandro is born, but uh, he dies age two. Leonora, their daughter, is born in 1515, and she becomes a nun and a composer, by the way, just putting that out there. Francesco, uh, he's born in 1516 and Isabella Maria Deste, who was born on the 14th of June 1519. She was born so sickly that like straight away they like she was out of the womb and she was in a chapel. Like they had her blessed and, and like they were so convinced and they, they were right. She died that day like super religious. They were like we need to baptize her now. Fuck, and they did. Anyway, and it's this final birth that leads to the premature death of Lucrezia. So she's holding court up in Ferreira and really holds her own there. Like, while everything else in the Borgias and everything is just, their powers are just gone. She's considered a very respectable and accomplished Renaissance duchess, really. And during her lifetime, she rises above the attempted tarnishing of her reputation. And, well, even though the Borgias, the political sort of alignment of that falls, 
she is still standing at the end of it. And really, it's only after her death that that the truth really gets twisted. But yeah, so Lucrezia, she has yet another complicated pregnancy and gives birth on the 14th of June, 1519. And she's like, she's really sick. She's really weak during during the whole pregnancy. And after she gives birth, she gets horrifically ill. And, and you know, so like they've got all the best physicians in there and they're, you know, working around the clock. And she, after a couple of days, she seems to be recovering. And then after that, she just gets worse. It just turns and she just gets worse and worse. Her health is just waning over the next eight days. And so 10 days after the birth and death of her daughter, she dies on the 24th of June, 1519 from pregnancy and childbirth. So when Lucrezia passes, Alfonso Duca Ferreira cries bitterly, like, like he sobs. Like, he's genuinely upset. And it's said that he cried bitterly at the loss of his sweet companion. Because they had a rather harmonious marriage, especially in in comparison to lots of the era. And Lucrezia is laid to rest in the convent of Corpus Domini. And, like, it's after her death, really, that the rumours really start to spread again. And, like, all of these allegations, they come out, and it's always, like, incest, poisoning, murder blah 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 but like there's no historical basis for it it's all shit like she kept poison in a hollow ring like because apparently she's just walking around parties just going boop dead boop dead boop dead that is what they're suggesting but okay that's no like because they'd much rather condemn a woman than admit that she was basically used and abused to benefit the men in her life And so that is the tale of Lucrezia Borgia, illegitimate daughter of the Pope, Roman royalty, and a woman with a scandalous reputation that was the invention of men. So if you liked my retelling of Lucrezia's often misinterpreted tale, please, 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 if you can, if you haven't already, I know it's annoying, it takes a minute and a half, can you go on to... If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, rate and review five stars. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you if you leave a review, you, it doesn't matter what you say, but the moment you type in anything, it really boosts me up that weird Apple algorithm and really helps promote the show, which puts me on the radar for like, you know, sponsors and stuff like that, which would be super duper because that would be very helpful for me. <laughs> It really just boosts the show from the business end and helps share it and puts it on other people's radar. And it just, it just helps. And if you're thinking, I want to do more than just rate and review, you can always follow on social media. I'm on Twitter as Who Did What Now PD because there's not enough characters for Who Did What Now Pod. I'm on Instagram and TikTok as Who Did What Now Pod. But maybe. You're thinking, I want to give you more stuff because books are expensive and you read a lot of shit to make this podcast. You can join Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash who did what now pod. And you can join there and get exclusive stuff and fun and goodies and help continue support this. Or perhaps you're like, maybe just a one-time thing, just a one-time bit of support. You can go on to paypal.com and donate to 
whodidwhatnowpod at gmail.com. Um, I've got all of the details in the show notes down below, so you don't have to worry about spelling stuff. But that being said, I want to say a few things before we get to recommendations. So I'm going to say hi to some very special people, some very special patrons. We have Jamie. She is awesome. I may have misgendered Jamie in a previous episode. And if I have, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm very sorry. Uh, That's on me for not paying attention and being a dick. That's on me. But Jamie... Thank you, thank you so much, you're awesome. Because Jamie, Jamie is an enchanting, full-acorned heartling. But Jamie isn't the only person that I have to say thank you to today. We also have Wendy and Sammy. Hi. Of course we have Wendy, my Wendy. Uh, so I'm really glad to have you here, thank you so much. And of course we have Sammy, my newest patron. Hi. Thank you for joining the Guild of Historical Descent. I'm just going to give another wee shout out to Helly from Niagara Falls, who is honestly one of the most impressive people that I know in my life. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) So now that we've got our thank yous out the way, I am going to give you some recommendations. Reading. Reading wise, I'm going to recommend you read a very insightful book uh, called... Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. Watching? How do I put this? Honestly, I'm still watching The Book of Boba Fett. It's very much, uh, it's very much my thing right now. No, actually, I've probably recommended this before, but I recently rewatched it. Um, it's on Disney Plus, um, stars on Disney Plus. It's Dollface. It's got like an awesome cast of women in it and it's just, ah, uh, it's, just the kind of irreverent humour that I'm looking for and stuff. So that's watching. And listening. Listening? Listen to me more. No. <laughs> no. Um, I'm going to recommend, I've been very women-centric this week. I'm going to recommend The Guilty Feminist. It really helped me challenge my own views and the way that I saw the world. So yeah, that's my recommendations for this week. And... I will chat to you next time. And so I'm going to bid you a farewell, my friends, my elephants and avocados. I have an unnatural obsession with the 40 elephants. Still, um, also, if any of you listened to last week's episode and you want to be... I, I'm still up for this 40 elephants thing. I'm here for it. I'm just, I'm just saying. Anyway, so <laughs> with that, with that, I will, I will bid you farewell. And I'll chat to you later on. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.